This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on May 5th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Well, Galileo, you know, was, first of all, a brilliant scientist, and he really initialized a, a real revolution in thinking in terms of how do we think about science. That's Mario Livio. He's an astrophysicist and the author of popular science books. His last appearance here was in 2017 to discuss his book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? He's back to talk about his new book, just out today, titled Galileo and the Science Deniers. We spoke by phone. Why did you think you needed to write this book now? So there are two questions here. I mean, one is why did I need to write the book at all? And the other is why did I need to write it now? Galileo always fascinated me. Galileo is is such an incredible person, you know, really larger than life. Um, Also the founder, really, of uh, modern astronomy and astrophysics. So as an astrophysicist, I was always fascinated by him. So that goes without any... you, You don't even need to mention it. Why now is that... The more I thought about Galileo and his personality and his fights, uh, I realized how relevant uh, his fights for intellectual freedom and against science deniers uh, is important for today when we are really facing rampant uh, science denial on many fronts. So that's why. And throughout the book, which is... uh also a fascinating, relatively short biography of Galileo. Throughout the book, you have these sort of asides where you do bring up the current situations where people are denying uh, the science of, for example, climate change or evolutionary biology. And so that always brings us back to the present moment. And we see the incredible parallels of just how in some ways things have barely changed, to to paraphrase uh, Galileo, it doesn't move. (laughs) Yes, uh, this is unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, you might have thought that we would have learned the lesson from uh, the Galileo story and the Galileo affair, as it is is known. Uh, But it is unfortunate that we still encounter science denial. And I'll tell you, I finished the book before uh, the current pandemic, uh, but the current pandemic only provided even more uh, striking examples um, to to science denial, especially you know in the early treatment of this this pandemic. I didn't want to make the book political. My statement against science denial has no right or left, uh, blue or red or things like that, and it's also not U.S. specific. I mean, you know, it it is true universally. Uh, We see examples of science denial all over the globe and for different reasons. I mean, in in one place it can be uh, things that have to do with religion. In others it may have to do with uh, just political conservatism. In other places it may have to do with economical reasons, uh, you know, wanting to be elected. So the reasons can be different and they can happen in many places. And this is why I didn't want to, to make it sound as if it is uh, it has some political agenda. It really deals with a, 
dangers of science denial that we are facing still today, unfortunately. I think most people know the general outlines of Galileo's story and how he got in such hot water back then. But do you do you feel like giving us the uh, the the brief tour of his uh, of his life and thoughts and and how he wound up in so much trouble? Sure. Yes. So, well, Galileo, you know, was first of all a brilliant scientist, and uh, in particular, he he really initialized a, a real revolution in thinking in terms of how do we think about science. To him, uh, science uh, could you you could do science and and obtain facts and, and truths about nature and the universe only through experimentation observation and the use of mathematics and reasoning uh, and in that he was really you know one of the pioneers of this idea and he did both experiments in physics and he of course did uh, fantastic observations uh, with one of the very first telescopes uh, of the heavens and discovered many things about the solar system which were not known uh, for example, satellites of Jupiter, the phases of Venus, um, you know, spots uh, on the sun, you know, sunspots, and, and things like that. So uh, his scientific uh, powers were, were just incredible. But at the same time, many of especially his findings in astronomy contradicted literal interpretations of scripture. Uh, he always insisted that they did not contradict scripture itself. He said scripture can never err, but literal interpretations, in particular, for example, uh, something that was constantly brought up was that passage from the book of Joshua, where, uh, you know, the sun stops in its course uh, above Gibeon. And uh, so the idea that Galileo was promoting that it was the earth that was moving around the sun and not the other way around uh, seemed to contradict a literal interpretation of that text. And Galileo insisted that um, you shouldn't interpret scripture literally because uh, scripture and, uh, and the Bible is not a science book. Uh, you know, he pointed out that even the planets are not named in the Bible. So the the goal of the Bible was to, you know, bring people to salvation and not to teach them science. But in this, he, of course, uh, you know, was an, on a collision course with uh, Catholic theologians who did insist on literal interpretations. And as a result of that, he was eventually, after publishing a book in particular, a uh, dialogue on, on the two chief world systems, you know, between basically the Copernican and and uh, the old uh, Ptolemaic or, you know, by then it was uh, really the church orthodoxy, the, the geocentric system. And he was put on trial and eventually found uh, guilty of uh, vehemently suspected of heresy, uh, was the phrase used. Uh, and uh, he was... Uh, condemned to house arrest, which he did for the rest of his life um, for uh, about eight and a half years. Um, and uh, so, you know, this was all a fight for intellectual freedom, basically. I mean, what I keep saying is that even if he was wrong in his theories, 
the church really, you know, should not have imprisoned him and and, and, and convicted him. I mean, uh, because this is what intellectual freedom means. Uh, but uh, that's what happened. And uh, it took uh, 350 years for the church to actually admit that uh, Galileo was right. And those theologians were wrong. And uh, should anyone not know, he was forced to get down on his knees and, and issue a statement in which he uh, took back everything that he had previously held. Yes. It's also quite interesting. You you have a section toward the end of the book in which you discuss uh, something that happened during World, World War II, uh, where the church wanted to do a, a reevaluation and... Um, History sort of repeated itself during that episode. Yes, that was a sad episode too. I mean, uh, they actually asked a person of the church to to write a, a new biography or, if you like, a whole uh, description of the entire affair uh, by, by the name of Pio Paschini. Uh, and he did. He wrote it. Uh, but after he wrote it, uh, you know, he, he basically decided that Galileo was right and the church was wrong in, in, in what they did to him. Uh, but the church didn't like that. And uh, they basically asked somebody to um, edit uh, his book. Uh, and that editor was supposed to really just, uh, you know, more or less update the book. But uh, he ended up... Uh, changing the meaning of what Paschini meant in many places, um, to, to, uh, which, which amounted at the end to, to the type of censorship that exactly the church uh, practiced during Galileo's time. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing that uh, during the 20th century uh, this event could still happen, but uh, fortunately still during the 20th century... Uh, um, you know, Pope John Paul II uh, at the end issued the statement that Galileo was right after all. And he was such an inventive thinker. I mean, just uh, the idea that you could uh, think of an inclined plane, even one with, I think in your book you say, as little of a slope as 1.7 degrees, as... Uh, well, well, think of the the vertical drop of something out of a window, for example, as just an extreme version of an inclined plane, and therefore slow down the rate at which something falls, so you can more easily study the the laws of motion in that way. Yeah, exactly. The, the, this, you know, these are just few of the fantastic things that he did. You know, to to understand that uh, you you must remember that there were no good ways to measure time at, at, at Galileo's time. Um, so uh, to just drop something for free fall, it, it was very difficult to, to see differences because they were, you know, very short times. Um, so we had this idea, yes, that, you know, you're right, that, you know, an inclined plane uh, still in terms of the vertical motion is the same as, as, as free fall. Uh, and that's how he basically he like almost diluted gravity, if you like, to make it much slower so that he could measure things more accurately. Absolutely. And um, I remember the first time I bought a decent set of binoculars and looked up at Jupiter and 
I realized that I was seeing Galilean moons. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for him to see those dots for the first time. And because I got a thrill out of it when I realized what I was looking at. And for him to see that, what do you think that was like for this person? Well, you know, think about this, that these were the first new objects found in the solar system since antiquity. Uh, I mean, you know, the planets were known, but, uh, but nothing else was discovered, you know, until Galileo. And then he suddenly discovered these four satellites, which at first he didn't realize they were satellites, but then realized it were satellites. So he discovered like a whole new mini solar system. Uh, you can imagine that this must have been incredible for him, you know, uh, a whole new solar system, things, you know, orbiting Jupiter, uh, and he not just observed them, he calculated the periods of of, of the orbits of, of these satellites and fantastic things. And the moon, you know, people sometimes say, you know, that uh, there was this uh, British uh, astronomer Harriot, who also observed the moon with a telescope. And he even made some drawings. But you see, Harriot, when he looked at the moon, he saw the same features that Galileo saw. But Galileo, because of his artistic training, his training as an artist and in, in drawing and in, in chiaroscura, you know, in, in shadow and light, he understood that what he was seeing were craters and mountains, you know, and so on. So it was not just to see the things, but to understand what they mean and to combine his artistic training with his science. This is what made him such a, a special person. And he really was, as you say in the book, he was literally a Renaissance man living during the Renaissance, but he was also what we think of today as a Renaissance man. He was a musician. His father had been a, a musicologist, a musical theoretician. So he was a pretty decent lute player, apparently, and uh, and his artistic uh, interest and his uh, interest in poetry. Did he write a book comparing two different poets? Yeah, an essay at least, yes. So yeah, he, he, com he compared uh, exactly two different poets. He expressed his views about one compared to the other and so on. And uh, yes, he uh, he was amazing in this way. And, uh, you know, and, and he had painter friends, uh, painters consulted with him. Uh, he, he wrote an essay about comparing painting to sculpture and things like that. Right. He thought painting was a superior art to sculpture. C correct. Yes. It's it's so interesting to think about this man living in this time where the instrumentation available, the technology available, is so limited, and still to be able to get these insights is just unbelievable. You're absolutely right. But even more than the instrumentation, what what leaves me speechless, I'll tell you, is his statement that the universe is written in the language of mathematics. You see, we are by now so used to this that when we do physics and we write the laws of physics, we write them as mathematical equations. So to, to tell us that, you know, you the universe is written in the language of mathematics, maybe we don't fully understand that, but it's something that we are accustomed to. You know, we, we write equations, yes. But when he lived, 
there were still no laws of physics written as mathematical equations. I mean, he, he basically wrote the first one of those. And yet, he had this feeling that somehow the laws of physics have to be mathematical. That, to me, is, is just incredible, from where he had that intuition. You mentioned the Brecht play a couple of times in the book, and... Um... There's a line from the Brecht play that I really love. Uh, he's with his assistant. They're preparing an experiment, and the assistant says, now we'll prove we're right. And Galileo says, no, now we'll find out if we're right. Yes, well, you know, the Bertolt Brecht play, of course, is uh, is just one more tribute to, to Galileo. I mean, Galileo is a person about whom... Uh, you know, an opera has been written. You know, Philip Glass wrote an opera about Galileo. Bertolt Brecht wrote the play. Uh, so many painters painted him and sculptures, you know. So, uh, yes, and, 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 and Brecht really, even though not everything is precisely accurate historically, but it captures the personality of, of Galileo extremely well and, and also the emotions involved. And speaking of the personality... He could be a sarcastic, um, nasty person. Oh boy, yes, he could. Yes, he was. Uh, look, he was a genius, and he was uh, a truly unusual person. But uh, he wasn't exactly nice. Uh, he was nice to his family, uh, and uh, you know, he supported the m- members of his family, and so on. And he had a few very, very good friends, extremely good friends. But he could be nasty to his his enemy. His sharp pen was just incredible. He, when especially if somebody disagreed with him, oh boy! I mean, this was endless. You know what he would pour onto that person. Uh, you know, one of the one of the stories I like best is uh, when when he had a. Uh, a certain dispute with a, with a Jesuit mathematician. And uh, it so happens that in one of the publications of the Jesuit mathematician, uh, his name was Grassi, by the way, he, he wrote uh, about uh, an old legend that the Babylonians cooked their eggs by um, using a sling and sort of rotating them, you know, on the, spinning them on, the, on that sling, and they would cook like that. And Galileo just couldn't hide his contempt. He wrote, uh, look, um, I I agree with what he says, but I think the reason that the eggs cooked is very different. And let me explain why. He says, if we repeat something that somebody else succeeded and we don't succeed, uh, and if there is only one thing that differs us from them, then that must be the thing that makes the, 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 the effect. So he says, look, we don't lack strong men who can, uh, you know, spin these these eggs. And we we, we do have slings and we have eggs. And yet when we do that, the eggs don't cook. In fact, if they were hot before, they even cool a little bit when we do that. So what is it that they have and we don't? He says, oh, well, they were Babylonians and we are not. So it must be that being Babylonian is necessary for the egg to cook. Yeah, I I have it right here. And since we lack nothing 
except being Babylonians, then being Babylonian is the cause of the egg hardening. It's fantastic. Yeah, he was funny and nasty, and and his his ability to write in a in a satirical, sarcastic uh, vein is he could have been a professional satirist. <laughs> yes, he could have been. Well, he also, you know, uh, this was very important. He 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 insisted on as many people as possible understanding what he wrote. So instead of writing in Latin, which is what most scientists at the time did, he actually insisted of writing most of his things in Italian, so that the ordinary people would be able to read it. So the question that we have to ask is, uh, what do we do? about the fact that we still have so many people who are denying the scientific reality, things like evolution and climate change. And there are other things that, I mean, there are still people out there who don't think the the earth is spherical. So, you know, I don't know how you reach them, but, you know, so what do we do about the science denial? Uh, well, you know, I, uh, there is, uh, clearly there is no magic thing that we can do because otherwise these things would not have persisted. Uh, you know, one keeps hoping that, you know, by writing books such as this, you know, Galileo and the Science Deniers, if many people read it, then, you know, maybe they get convinced. But uh, I, I'm sorry to say that, you know, many studies show that, um when people are really convinced of something, it is extremely hard to change their views by by just arguments. Um, and and so, you know, I think that the burden is really on the education system. Uh, the education system has to be such that it teaches the, you know, the fact that science is is all around us, and that science is the only thing that gives. Uh, predictions that can be falsified or verified uh, and um, it's also the only area which corrects itself over time I mean sometimes you, you know because science isn't always right I mean you know we have theories which turn out to be wrong but over time we find out that those theories are wrong and and sometimes it takes a very short time sometimes it may take decades um, but but there is this self-correction in science, uh, which doesn't exist in many other disciplines. And uh, this needs to be taught in, in, in schools and, you know, at homes and so on. And um, there is no other way than, than through education, because, like I said, once you are already convinced in something else, it is extremely difficult to change minds. I guess if Galileo were here, he would say, well, let me post a pasquinade against uh, some of these people. Uh, yes, Galileo would have been amazed at some of the things that happened today. Some of the things would not have surprised him because he encountered the same thing. Uh, but, um, you know, I think things like climate change, he, he would be beside himself. I mean, he, he wouldn't understand how, how... Look, there are things which whether you deny them or not and so on, maybe doesn't make a huge uh, difference to your everyday life. But to deny science uh, when uh, literally the future of life on earth is at stake, 
is just insane. There is no other word of, you know, saying this. There's an irony in the book and in, and in our lives where uh, Galileo is now used by people who disagree with the scientific consensus on things like climate, where they, they cite Galileo as someone who went against the grain and was ultimately proven to be right. Uh, and you talk about that in the book. It's, it's ironic and, and in some ways tragic. It is, yes. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is really a logical fallacy. Um, I mean, uh, people cite Galileo as, oh, look, here was one who was going against the mainstream and he turned out to be right. Therefore, um, you know, those few who speak against climate change are right. Galileo was right not because he was one against many. I mean, he was right because he was right. Uh, so it's not the case that now every time that one speaks against the mainstream, he or she is right. Most of the time, those people are wrong. In some rare cases, they are right. So uh, to bring that as an argument is just is just ridiculous. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.